0: Hello, pilgrims, this gospel baffled me completely every time I heard it from when I was in grade school back before Vatican II right up to during the time when I was studying for the diaconate. I mean, I take a job with someone to collect debts that are owed to him, and I do such a lousy job that I get fired, and then I defraud the guy who hired me, by using his assets to make a golden parachute for myself by creating a moral obligation to me on the part of his debtors. And when he finds out about it, he says, well, my, my, aren't you a clever boy? Seriously? Now, I once heard a homilist explain that the steward wasn't really using his master's assets. He was giving up his own commission. He was taking the commission he would earn (coughs) on those debts and foregoing it, so that he would create a moral obligation. He would scratch the backs of the debtors. They would have to scratch his. When he came by and said, look, can I crash with you for a while? They would have to say yes. That was the way the Mediterranean world looked at things. It wouldn't just be favor for favor. They had a moral obligation because they had accepted that gift he gave them. And that that was pretty good for about 15 seconds. And I thought, no, wait a minute, that doesn't work. He's giving up commissions on debts he hasn't collected yet. He hasn't earned the commissions. The guy who comes after him, he's never going to collect the debts because he's been fired. The guy who comes after him either will not get a commission of his own, or else the the master, the the, uh, obligee, will have to pay two commissions. And either way, it sounds like theft to me. So like I said, totally baffled. And maybe that is why, when I was preparing this homily, the Holy Spirit decided to provide me (coughs) with help from a very high and exalted source, Harvard University. You see, Harvard University has a problem. Over the years, it has received well over a billion dollars in donations, much of it from grateful alumni, but some of it just from very rich people, sort of like the master in today's gospel who, if they, they think that if they get their name on a building at Harvard or an exhibit at Harvard or a project at Harvard, uh, will have a prestige and a social standing from that that they otherwise couldn't possibly buy with all of their wealth. And then over the past few months, over this summer, Harvard discovered that over $10 million in those donations had come from a man who had committed crimes of unbelievable depravity, of grotesque depravity. In other words, that it was dirty money. Now Harvard had spent most of the money he gave but they took a look as the headlines got worse and worse and worse they took a look and they found out they still had $186,000 that he had given lying around unspent. So Harvard University said in a press release we're giving some thought to what we should do with this dirty money. They didn't put it quite that way, but that was the the, uh, the main message. Well, the steward in today's gospel was also playing with dirty money. And unlike Harvard University, he knew it perfectly well from the get-go. The steward and his master in today's gospel were engaged together. They were complicit, up to their eyebrows, in a ruthless and cynical exploitation of a legal loophole. It was flatly illegal under Mosaic law to charge interest on a loan or a debt. Canon law took exactly the same position during the Middle Ages. Any interest was usury. So if you were a scrupulous and devoutly observant Jew, you didn't charge interest on loans or debts owed to you. But if you weren't quite so scrupulous, you would look for a loophole and you would find one. And the loophole was pretty simple. If someone owed you money equal to 80 measures of wheat, you would write in the promissory note that he owed you money equal to 100 measures of wheat. You would get the de facto interest on the loan by inflating the amount of the principal. Not so scrupulous Christians, by the way, tried something very much like that and successfully tried it during the Middle Ages. Everybody knew what was going on, but technically you weren't charging interest, so you could get away with it. Now the steward, when he was forced by circumstances, forced by the threat of dismissal, in the same way that Harvard was forced by all those headlines, when he was forced to do something, he called the debtors in, and when he had them write down their promissory notes, when he had them change the amounts due, he was having them changed the promissory notes to show that they owed what they had actually been lent and not a fictitious inflated amount. So, although his motives were completely selfish, he was, as if he were suddenly channeling the prophet Amos whom we heard in the first reading, he was trying to do some small act of justice. He was protecting himself by being just to the debtors, just as Harvard will do something just with that one hundred eighty-six thousand dollars, I hope. Now, Jesus didn't have any illusions. The, the, that doesn't make that does not make the steward a good guy. He wasn't a good guy. He was deeply implicated in the evasion, the legal evasion that his master was practicing and profiting from, but at least he did. One small act of justice. And Jesus was not telling a parable, he was not saying yeah, uh, God is, the master is God and the steward is us and if we show that we are very clever about doing, uh, about sharp practices and uh, cutting corners in business, God will reward us. No, 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 that's not what he's saying at all. He was giving to his disciples a description, sort of an idealized instance, an example of something that they knew about perfectly well. This happened all the time in first century Judea. It was part of the way the world was. Like if if someone, if Jesus were giving a, a talk today and he talked about campaign contributions, we'd all know what was going on. We know what happens with campaign contributions. He wouldn't have to spell it out. And he was saying something very bracing and something very comforting. The bracing part was If you live in the real world, whether it is the real world of first century Judea governed by Mosaic law, or the real world of the Middle Ages governed by canon law, or the real world of the United States of America governed by the Uniform Commercial Code, you are, no matter how blameless you are, no matter how scrupulous you are, you are going to have to deal with mammon with dishonest wealth with what we today would call dirty money you can't possibly avoid it we had an example uh just earlier this summer fitzgerald's pharmacy had to close because being a small uh single outlet company uh just a store it couldn't get the uh couldn't get drug prices and co-pays from insurance companies and pharmacies pharmacists as low as the giant national chains could get. That's something that's been going on in this country since the 20s. That small small operations are forced out of business by the economic power of large ones. Perfectly legal. Now, this was true for years. But for years, many people, many members of this very community, would go to Fitzgerald's anyway for their prescriptions even though they knew they could go down the street and get them cheaper at a national chain. They did that because that felt just. That was a tiny, small act of justice on their part. Over time, things got to the point where people some people couldn't, simply couldn't afford to do it. The copays got too high, they couldn't manage them. And so they would have to go down the street. But even then, some people in that group would make it a point to not to do one-stop shopping at the national chain they'd get their prescriptions there but then they'd make a second stop and take an extra 10 minutes out of their lives at Fitzgerald's to buy mouthwash or toothpaste or greeting cards or candy bars instead of getting them at the national chain another small act of justice it seems tiny it seems almost pathetic but it was the best that they could do and it kept Fitzgerald's open probably for four or five or six years longer than it would have been able to stay open otherwise. And that is the comforting part of Jesus' message. Even though you have to deal with mammon, even though you have to have dirty money run through your hands and through your bank account, no matter what you do, no matter how careful you are, you simply can't avoid it. Every single, small, tiny act of justice counts. It counts as your effort to do something right and to respond constructively to the pervasive corruption and injustice to the mammon, the dishonest wealth, the dirty money that surrounds us in any society. It's not that American society is wicked or rigged. Mosaic society in the first century wasn't wicked or rigged. The Middle Ages under canon law weren't wicked or rigged. But all of those societies were governed by rules that had to deal with people stained with original sin. And therefore, they had to involve people one way or another, sooner or later, in mammon, in dishonest wealth, in dirty money. And Jesus said, you can't change that. You can't simply withdraw from the world and never have that happen to you. But what you can do is look for a way to perform some small act of justice, and when you do, that counts. It may not be feed the hungry, clothe the naked. It may not be as noble and soaring as that, but it still counts. It still (coughs) matters, because when you do the best you can do, because when you do your best, that is often the best you can do, however small or tiny it may be.